Uh, if you have a Bible, turn with me, if you will, to 2 Peter chapter 2. It's funny, my wife never sings like that at home. I wonder why. <laughs> I dwell the singing at home. Um, it's not pretty. All right. 2 Peter chapter 2, and I titled the message, Detecting Falsehood. Verse 1, But there are also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them, and bring on themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their destructive ways, because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. By covetousness they will exploit you with deceptive words. For a long time their judgment has not been idle and their destruction does not slumber. For if God did not spare the angels who sinned but cast them down to hell and deliver them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment and did not spare the ancient world but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes condemned them to destruction making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly and delivered righteous Lot who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked for that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. Then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. And especially those who walk according to the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise authority, they are presumptuous, self-willed. They are not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries, whereas angels who are greater in power and might do not bring them a reviling accusation against them before the Lord. But these, like natural brute beasts, made to be caught and destroyed, speak evil of the things they do not understand and will utterly perish in their own corruption and will receive the wages of unrighteousness as those who count it a pleasure to carouse in the daytime. They are spots and blemishes, carousing in their own deceptions while they feast with you having eyes full of adultery and that cannot cease from sinning, enticing unstable souls. They have a heart trained in covetous practices and are accursed children. They have forsaken the right way and gone astray, following the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages, the wages of unrighteousness, but he was rebuked for his iniquity. A dumb donkey speaking with a man's voice restrained the madness of the prophet these are wells without water, clouds carried away by a tempest, for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. For when they speak great swelling words of emptiness, they allure through the lust of the flesh, through lewdness, the ones who have actually escaped from those who live in error. While they promise them liberty, they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by whom a person is overcome, by him also he is brought into bondage. For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them again, I'm sorry, in them and overcome. The latter end is worse for them than the beginning. For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. But it has happened to them according to the true proverb, a dog returns to its own vomit and a sow having washed to her wallowing in the mire. Pretty lengthy chapter, but pretty important. You know, a, chi a Chinese boy wanted to learn about jade. And he wanted to study under a talented teacher. And he went to this Gentile man, and he, he put this precious stone into his hand. And he told him to hold it tight. And as he began to hold it tight, the teacher began to speak about philosophy, the sun, men and women, on and on for about an hour. And then he sent the boy home, took the stone back, came back the next day, 
and he repeated the same thing over and over again. After a couple of weeks, the boy became frustrated. He figured, when is this guy going to teach me about Jay? I mean, I need to know about Jay. Well, one day, the teacher puts the stone in his hand, and instinctively the boy retracts. He says, hey, wait a minute. This isn't Jade. Exactly. For those weeks that he held that stone, he became familiar without knowing it. He handled the stone. He was familiar with the stone, unbeknownst to him. The teacher taught him a great lesson without him even knowing. He knew what Jade feels like. And tonight, we want to be able to detect the real from the false. In our context tonight, we're talking about false teachers. Jesus told us to beware of wolves in sheep's clothing in Matthew chapter 7. Paul told us that he would not neglect to remind us of false teachers. Peter, also here tonight, is warning us of the presence of false teachers that they're coming and they're here. And today, again, it's no different. They're with them from the beginning, and they're going to be with us till the end. In 1989, a Gallup poll revealed that 78% of the public believes that televangelists are untrustworthy with money. 71% say they're dishonest. 67% say they're insincere. And 61% say they don't care about the people. What do you think their assessment would be 25 years later? Thank you. I would think that the moment you accept Christ in your life, you would be that much more smarter. Wouldn't you? You're born again, man. God has given you the mind of Christ, the ability to discern. Yet how many people go after these hucksters? If you're a note taker tonight, we want to look at four areas regarding false teachers. One, the guarantee of false teachers, verses one through three. Number two, the destiny of false teachers, verses 4 through 11. Third, the nature of false teachers, verses 12 through 17. And fourthly, the objective of false teachers, verses 18 through 22. Let's look at our first point, the guarantee of false teachers, verses 1 through 3. Peter begins this epistle, in the first chapter, with some foundational truths that we should not ignore because it sets the tone for the rest of the epistle. Notice here in chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, he says, As His divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great, and notice, precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption in the world through lust. These are important elements which are not only foundational, but they should be protected and passed on. The problem is these truths are going to be challenged. They're going to be attacked, and they're going to be marginalized. By whom? The false teachers. They don't want you to know that God has given to you all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called you. They don't want you to know He has given you great and precious promises. They want you to settle for the here and now. They don't want you to know that, that you are to be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in this world through lust. They want to suck you back in. No, they don't want you to know any of that. They don't want you to, they want to be the authority. And they want to have control over you. They want to have power over you. And the way they do, it is, they do that is by attacking the Word of God. And also, they attack the Word of God, Jesus Christ. They attack those two. Who He is and His teachings. Because if you discount who He is, then you've destroyed Christendom. They know that. Now notice Peter's warning. He guarantees that false teachers are coming. He says, there will be false teachers among you, verse 1. They're, it's a guarantee. They're going to be in your midst. Now, before I go on, I, I just want to give you a word of caution. Uh, we need to be balanced when we talk about false teachers or false prophets. 
And the reason I say that is because sometimes we can be hypercritical, right? We, we think we're, you know, spiritual police. We immediately begin to handcuff somebody because they're an error. Well, that could be an error because it's a sincere mistake and maybe they're willing to be corrected. We're talking about people who are not. These people who are, far, who are false teachers. So that being said, let's move on. In the previous chapter, specifically verses 19, 20, uh, verses 19 through 21, we read, again, the context, And so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to take heed as a light that shines in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first, notice, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but the holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. We read, man is the instrument. God is the author. Man is the pen. God is the mind. He is the inspiration behind the pen. The pen is just an instrument. The pen never... Uh, again, is the instrument it never originated with the ideas? It never originated with the concepts or the inspiration of Scripture. God did. And why is this important? Because all false prophets, all of them, okay, will claim divine inspiration. They will claim divine authority. They will say, "I've been inspired by the Spirit of God to tell you this, brother." They claim authority. Scripture says that never came by the will of man. The first thing we understand then is there will be false prophets in our midst and they're going to, notice, introduce destructive heresies. And it'll contradict the inspiration of Scripture and doctrine. We need to know how they line up. We need to scrutinize what they say in comparison with the Scriptures. Is their message consistent with the Bible? Or does it contradict the Bible? Notice how they do it. They bring it in secretly. And what a contrast from Jesus. Really. In John uh, 18, 20, Jesus said, I spoke openly to the world. I always taught in the synagogues and in the temple where the Jews always meet. And notice, and in secret, I have said nothing. He spoke plainly. He, he never spoke in secret and, and, and had private discussions in the sense where no one knew what was going on. He spoke openly and freely. Again, unlike false teachers, they bring in destructive heresies secretly and covertly. Now the phrase destructive heresies comes from the Greek apolia, which means destruction or destructive. And the word heresies, the noun, it comes from the Greek word herero, which meant to choose. In its history, originally it meant to uh, choice. But in the process of time, it came to mean what is chosen. And finally, it, it came to mean a peculiar or different opinion. And that's what heresy is, folks. It's a different opinion. It's a different one. Folks, destructive heresies are just that. They're destructive. The main issue is trying to discern what they teach and who they are because so many of them use the same words we use and they bring it in secretly they look like us they sound like us but they are not of us well what kind of destructive heresies are we talking about i mean we're going to look at a few but there's so many in peter's day gnosticism was the flavor of the month you see they believed the bible they agreed with most of the doctrines hey they sound like believers but they, they claim to possess a secret knowledge. Interesting. Uh, they were a little more spiritual because they had something the average believer like you and I didn't have. And you know, what's interesting about that is when, when someone claims that, it becomes a little attractive because we want to know. Right? What is it you know? Like we have some special connection. Like, like they think Billy Graham or or some other religious person has a special connection with God. You know, what you have in your, in, in your lap tonight, folks, is all you need. But they, they claim to have some secret knowledge. 
Now, I know I'm not going to sound popular when I say this, but I also believe that Calvinism is a destructive heresy. It's a different opinion. It portrays God as a monster. Calvinism asserts that God has elected billions of people to go to hell. And, and, and he's, he's doing it. You know why he's doing that? Why he's electing them to go to hell? The reason is to demonstrate his justice. He says, see, I'm sending them to hell because they're sinners. And, and the way I prove that is I, I, I contrast that with my justice and who, my character and who I am. But that doesn't sound like the God of the Bible that I know of. Because the Bible tells me there is no unrighteousness with God. It eliminates man's free will and choice. Get a chance to read Dave Hunt's book on, on Calvinism. It'll enlighten you. Another is the emergent church movement. They implement an interspirituality, which is the outcome of contemplative prayer. If you, your kids go to Biola or APU, they'll take a course on it. They incorporate Eastern mysticism, relativism, and are ecumenical, denying that Jesus is the only way to salvation. Brian McLaren promotes an interspirituality that says, Christianity is too limiting. Really? What is interspirituality, you might ask? It's a basic assumption that all paths lead to God. And that sounds so reasonable, doesn't it? it sounds so appealing. They put that aside. I'm sorry. They put aside the work, the atoning work of Jesus Christ, His work on the cross. And it's a sanitized, friendlier presentation of a deluded gospel. All roads lead to God is not the gospel. Matthew 7, 13 says, Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are a few who go in. No. There are many who go in. It's an appealing message. Now, either the emergent teachers are right, and Jesus was misinformed, or Jesus is right, and they're all misinformed. Who do you side with? Folks, these are destructive heresies, different opinions, and there are many, many more to consider. Notice also in verse 1 that not only are we guaranteed the emergence of false teachers with their destructive heresies, but notice also the denying of the Lord who bought them. That is so eerie to me. They denied the Lord who bought them. Paul deals with a similar issue with the Galatians. And he says to them in Galatians 1.6, I marvel that you are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. What Paul was saying is there, there isn't another gospel. There's only one gospel, one way, folks. It's not Jesus and. The moment you include and, now you're tainting the gospel and now you have another gospel. It's not Jesus and. Eventually their message veers so far from the gospel that they begin denying the Lord that bought them. What does that mean? They deny the deity of Christ. Again, the work of Christ. The shedding of His blood for our sins. They deny His resurrection. These are the areas they attack. And these are the areas they will always attack. Why? Because they know what people want to hear and they know what they don't want to hear they want to appeal to their flesh people don't want to hear about the blood of Christ or of a suffering Messiah why? it's not palatable I don't want to hear that I shared many times up here I remember one Easter uh, uh, an elderly lady goes into uh, a store to buy a card and it's you know she's thinking you know bunny rabbits and eggs and she looks up and she sees a card with Christ on there. And she goes, oh, look, they're putting religion into Easter. A different view. You see, people don't want to hear that. It's not palatable to them. But give them a book on self-esteem, man. They're, they're gobbling it up. That's all they're talking about. You want to know your word? It's linked to Christ. You are nothing without Him. Really. If you think about that, you are nothing without Him. But in Him, now we're talking. Before Christ, I was a nobody going nowhere fast. But now that I am in Christ, my life has, has meaning. And it's never been the same. 
You know, Pastor Diego and I were talking last week, and, and we're talking about boredom, you know, and, and how people get burned out. And, you know, we, we talked about the issue and, and, or the whole idea of boredom. And, you know, we've never been bored. As a matter of fact, if you follow Christ, I really, I challenge you tonight. When you go home, think about this. If you're born again, tell me the last time you were bored. I mean that. When was the last time you were bored? This sermon is boring. Okay, I got the point. Let's move on. All right. Swift destruction doesn't sound good no matter how you read it. Not only for them, but also for those that follow them. You know the scariest thing about this passage is? Is what it says in verse 2. Many will follow their destructive ways. That's the saddest part of this passage. Many will follow because no doubt it's an easier message to embrace. They follow them because their message appeals to to their desires. They follow them because their message is less demanding. The problem is, it isn't the truth. I need to hear the truth. I don't need you to pacify me. I need to know what's wrong with me. And the Bible reflects exactly just that. What is wrong with me? How many times do you read of Ezekiel or Jeremiah, the true prophets, warning the people to turn from their sins and repent, and the message goes on ignored? Yet who do they listen to? The false prophets. The true prophets are always the minority. The false aren't. True prophets warn of the destruction coming. The false tell you there is no destruction coming. Who are you going to believe? You know, if you have any uh, children in college like I do, then you'll know they just had finals last week. And my daughter, Talia, you know, she had some, uh, she had some finals to take, and she had a, a finals in humanities. And she told me, you know, Dad, it's going to be easy. You know why it's going to be easy? Because our teacher, he's already told us he disdains tests. So he's, he's made it really easy in the sense that he's given us an, an open book test. And not only is it an open book test, he says he's even given us the pages to the questions he's given us. It's a no-brainer. You should pass, right? It's no problema. Do you realize that we're in the same position? We have an open book test. Every time we hear someone teach, we have an open book to refer to. I can always go back to the Word of God and compare. But often we don't do that. This is the litmus test, folks, right here. I need to go back to this. This is an open book test. Every time I hear somebody, I need to go back to this. We don't have to guess. The Scriptures provide us with all the answers regarding doctrine doctrine that we'll ever need. And what did Jesus say? What did He tell us in John 8, 32? You shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. God's Word. Notice verse 3. By covetousness, they will exploit you with deceptive words. By covetousness, they're going to exploit you with their deceptive words. In other words, their motive is greed. And the way they hustle you is through their deceptive uh, speech. In the King James, it says, they will use feigned words. Plastos in the Greek. It's where we get our English word for plastic. In other words, they're going to fabricate words to merchandise you, the people of God. They're going to formulate what they say to get something from you. They want to merchandise you. However, the scripture says they're not going to go unpunished. God sees everything and He loves His sheep. Ultimately, they're going to be judged and they're going to be destroyed. Matthew 7.15, if you can, turn with me there. Matthew chapter 7, verse 15 down to 23. It says, Beware. Jesus is telling us of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits... You shall know them. 
Interesting, huh? By their fruits. You know, um, I've been raising a lot of trees lately, growing fruit trees. And there are branches that do bear fruit and there's that, that others don't. And the ones that don't, man, I get rid of them. They're a waste of energy. They do, they do nothing. They produce nothing. And that's the picture Jesus is saying here. For those people who lived in that day, they knew exactly what he's talking about. He says, that tree right there, that branch right there is a fruit-bearing tranche, uh, branch. You see the buds on there. You don't cut that off. That branch over there just has leaves. Cut that off. You'll know them by their fruit. That one's not bearing any fruit. Ah, hey, clue number one. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Do you think he knows exactly who these folks are? Folks, sheeps are vegetarians. Sheep don't eat other sheep. Also, sheep pray for other sheep. They don't prey on sheep. So if you see a sheep cannibalizing another sheep, chances are it's a wolf. Notice they dress up like sheep. They have the appearance of sheep. But wolves don't sound like sheep. That's why it's important that you have to hear them. You have to have an ear to hear what they have to say. False teachers may fool some of the sheep, but they're not fooling God. They exploit the name of God to enrich themselves. And God says, I never knew you intimately, relationally. You're a wolf. You practice lawlessness. Now, what does that mean for us who preach and teach truth? We're going to be the minority. Just like Noah, just like Jeremiah, and you're not going to be liked. But that's just how you know you're in the right place. Jesus said in John 15, 18, If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you're of the world, the world would love its own. And that's key. The world would love its own. Yet, because you are not of the world, I chose you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. The world loves its own and the false teacher loves the world. There's a contrast. We need to be on guard because as Peter has stated, they are certainly coming. They're coming. I have a personal responsibility in knowing the Word of God. In order to detect deceptive teachers, specifically their teachings. Do you read your Bibles? Or are you just solely dependent on a pastor or a teacher? Are you just depending on them? If not, it'll be very difficult for you to discern the truth from falsehood. You need to study the Bible for yourself. Right, folks, don't believe me, okay? Tonight, and you go, don't believe me. Go to the scriptures, read the Bible for yourselves. I mean, here at Calvary Chapel Pasadena, we go through the Scriptures verse by verse so you can grow and assess the Scriptures for yourselves. That's, that's a personal responsibility that you need to take. You know, a certain professor said to have met a man who, who had claimed to have memorized the whole Old Testament. And not only the Old Testament, but in Hebrew. And so this professor says, we, we, I need to meet you. I need to see a demonstration. I need to hear you give me and articulate the scriptures in Hebrew yourself. So they met, and a few days later they sat down in the man's home, and he says, well, where shall we begin? He goes, you know what? Start with Psalm 1. The professor was really fond of, of the psalm, so here he goes. He starts to recite from memory in the Hebrew the whole book of Psalms. Then he starts to begin to, to do the whole Old Testament. And the professor sat there stunned in silence. And when the demonstration was over, the professor discovered something else to his astonishment. He was an atheist. The man was a non-believer. He was someone who just knew the scriptures, but he was never a Christian. How many Christians 
never pick up their Bible. Oh, oh, oh that, 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 that program on the radio, that was great. With that, that person on, on TBN, man, the way he waved his jacket, man, that was awesome. He just energized me. But what does the Scripture say? Uh, this man learned the, the Old Testament in Hebrew. Non-believer. Put some of us to shame. We wonder why we run into so many problems. We need to become familiar with our Bibles. Let's look at the destiny of false teachers, verses 4 through 11. For if God did not spare the angels who sinned. Interesting. The point that Peter is going to make is these false teachers are not going to escape judgment. Though it seems like they're enriching themselves and exploiting the people, God is going to take care of them. Peter's going to talk about the angels who fell. He's going to talk about Noah and the judgment of the world. And he's going to mention Sodom and Gomorrah as examples and how none of them, none of them escaped judgment. Again, they were cast into hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment and did not spare the ancient world that saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood of the on the world of the ungodly and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly and delivered righteous Lot who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked for that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. Then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. Remember, let's stay in context with the previous verse. Their destruction does not slumber. All these examples serve as a purpose. They're going to experience the consequences of their actions. They've sown to the wind and they're going to reap the whirlwind. As Sun Tzu said, the wheels of justice grind slow, but they grind fine. Peter is saying they're not going to get away with anything. Their destiny is judgment, God's wrath. And he uses three examples. And no doubt, he could have used more, but he didn't have to. Notice uh, here in verse 4, cast them down to hell. And that word in the Greek is tartarosos. In Latin, it's tartarus. And, we, and uh, there are three Greek words for hell, okay, in the New Testament. The first is Gehenna which really means hell and is rendered in almost all versions as hell. It occurs 12 times in the New Testament, 7 times in Matthew, 3 times in Mark, once in Luke, and in James. The word has its origins, come, and it comes from the valley of the son of Hinnom, located south of Jerusalem. Ahaz and Manasseh, the two wicked kings of Judah, sacrificed their sons to the heathen god Molech, and you can see that in 2 Chronicles chapter 28, verse 3, 33, 6, and Jeremiah 32, 35. Israel's good king Josiah defiled the place in 2 Kings 23, 10. And it eventually became the city dump. Folks, this is where everyone went to burn their trash. Everything that was left over from the sacrifices, entrails. And just, you can just imagine what this place must have looked like. Then Gehenna became known to the Jews as a place for final judgment. Jesus used the word this way 11 times. The second word translated hell in the New Testament is the word Hades. It occurs 11 times in the New Testament and is translated hell 10 of those times. And once in 1 Corinthians 15.55 as the grave. Hades in, is known in Greek mythology as the god or king of the underworld. It is not the place of everlasting punishment. It is used in the New Testament for the abode of departed souls. Here in Second Peter, we find this third word, Tartarus. And it's only used once, and you guessed it, right here. It's the only place in the Scripture. And it's in the Eros participle. It means once and for all. They're here. Tonight, that's where they're at. The angels who fell, they're there. And it's clear that this place must be a distinct location apart, <clears throat> excuse me, where the spirits of men go when they die. 
Furthermore, notice they are, they are in chains of darkness. In some manuscripts, the word is translated chains, while in other manuscripts, it's translated pits. We cannot be certain of the original form, but the meaning is essentially the same. These angels are awaiting final judgment. They couldn't escape. They're sitting in Tartarus tonight, incarcerated. Something happened. What was so bad that these, that these angels did that landed them in Tartarus? First, we have to understand these angels are fallen. Revelation 12.4 tells us that Satan drew a third of the heavenly host with him. And, you know, I began to think about this. What was that like in heaven? To see these angelic beings who are mightier than men with hell. What was that like? What was that like for God? To see these angels fall with Satan. Isaiah 14, verse 12, describes the fall of Lucifer. He has an interesting title in that passage. He is called the Son of the Morning, the Day Star. The idea is he looked towards the horizon in the morning as the sun begins to break and you see the radiance fill the sky. That's the title he's given. That's his name. He is beautiful, folks. He is not this hideous, grotesque figure that we often see, right? Pitchfork, horns, red pajamas. No. He's beautiful. I think all the angels are beautiful. We also know in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10 through 12, that our struggle is not with flesh and blood, is it? Who is it with? Verse 12, against principalities, powers, against the rulers of darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. If fallen angels still have access to our world, and our struggle is with them, then why do we have this reference in Second Peter? The reason could lie in what we, we read in Genesis chapter 6. What does it say in Genesis 6? Well, it tells that the sons of God, it's a reference to fallen angels, went into the sons of men. And they bore children to them. What's going on here? It's better. What kind of children? Giants. Okay, can you elaborate? Uh, no, I wasn't there. Couldn't tell you. There was a corruption taking place before the flood. And what was that like? Again, I don't know. But something was going on, and it was a result of these fallen angels intermingling with mankind. Now, in order to avert this from taking place again, I believe God has to incarcerate these specific angels from repeating the cycle again. He has to incarcerate them. However, the message from Peter is clear. Angels who are certainly greater than men in respect to power and ability, they're not going to escape judgment. They're awaiting judgment right now. God judges rebellion and will not spare those who sin against Him. Not even if you're an angel. And notice, the sentence continues with and. And we're going to see a few more ands in a second here. And did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly, verse 5. You know, this verse is the only passage of the Bible that tells us uh, that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. Genesis 6-3 tells us that God had given man 120 years before he sent the flood. And, and no doubt in my mind, Noah talked about righteousness for 120 years. He told the people, right living, wrong living, judgment is coming. It's going to rain. Yeah, all right, Noah. It's rain. Look at that old man building a boat for what? We have plenty of water here. It's coming from the ground. We need rain. Again, he was not the majority. He was the minority. And how many people repented in those 120 years? Zero. Not one person repented. You know, today folks misinterpret God's patience with indifference. And this is a common mistake the false teachers make as well. Jesus said in Luke 17, 26, that people were enjoying their lives up to the day of the flood. And I don't have a doubt in my mind that there are plenty of religious people in Noah's day. The experts 
the naysayers in, in, in that day who mocked Noah and his family. Where are they to know? How many people survived? Eight. Eight people. In Peter's day, it was no different. Peter tells us in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 3 through 9, it says, Knowing this first, the scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts, and saying, Ha oh, ha, where is the promise of His coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For this they willfully forget, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of water and in the water, by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But, beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. The message is clear. God will judge those who reject His truth. You see that as you read this passage. Verse 6, And turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemn them to destruction, making them example to those who afterward would live ungodly. Notice that. As an example to who? To all of us. That's an example to all of us. That if you're going to reject the warnings, judgment will come. Irregardless of how you feel or think, judgment is coming. You've been warned. The story of Sodom and Gomorrah is found in Genesis 18-19. through 19. You know God's commentary of the people who live there is? It's found in Genesis 13, 13. It says, The men of, of Sodom were wicked and sinners before the Lord exceedingly. Jude, verse 7, tells us they were given over to fornication, going after strange flesh. There's bestiality, homosexuality, apparent living. Sound like today? Oh my gosh, don't even go to the internet because you will find crazy stories. Crazy stories. You talk bestiality on the rise? Crazy. And that's what we're living today. Again, there's, there is a sin of fornication, sodomy, homosexual behavior, which is clearly condemned in Scripture. Read Leviticus 8.22, Romans 1.24, 1 Corinthians 6.9. Craziness. You know, a couple of years ago, as I helped uh, teach a high school Bible club, there was a senior there. And I couldn't help but notice him because he acted rather flamboyantly. And oh, I'm thinking, man, this is way different than I was growing up in high school. Just blew my mind. And the, the issue of homosexuality came up in one of our discussions. And he, he said, you know, I, I believe you could be a homosexual and, and a Christian. And there were a couple of kids there going, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and they had this consensus going on. And, and, um, and it was obvious he didn't know what he was talking about. And I, and I asked him pol politely, um, where do you see that in the scripture? Can you give me some references? And, and, and he said, well, in my church, that's what they teach, that God is a God of love. God created us, created us this way. And if we love each other, this is acceptable. What's the problema? And my, my reply to him was, well, since you didn't provide me with any scripture references, let me give you a couple and you tell me what you think. So, I handed him my Bible and I, I took him to Romans 1 and I, and I had him read out loud. And at first he took a shirt and a big old smile and began to read Romans 1 and before he got to the end of the chapter his voice went down to a whisper. He knew. He was stunned. And I asked what the passage meant to him. And it took him a few seconds to gather himself. And he said, well, this is what our pastor said to us. That you could be a Christian homosexual. And I said, you still believe that after what you just read? He goes, let me think about it. He came to one more study and never saw him again. 
that poor kid was hoodwinked by a pastor who used the language of the Bible. In this case, the banner of love. Because God, you know, God is love, right? Folks, these are tools that false teachers use to win people over. They, they use the same words we do, but they operate with a different vocabulary. God is going to judge that person, that teacher, who convolutes and distorts his word. He says here in the second half of verse 9, he's reserving the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. There's a special day coming, folks, for those who, t- who take opportunity to deceive his people. But there's the other side of the coin. He knows how to reserve also us. He knows how to protect the believer. Just like he protected Noah. Just like he protected Lot. He knows how to protect his own. That's the flip side. Now, again, what about us, you may say? Again, the Lord knows how to deliver the godly. We're his children. Verse 10 says, And especially those who walk according to the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise authority. Peter further describes these false teachers as presumptuous, which means they're very bold. They're brash. You know, they're self-willed, which means they, they live to please self, and God is the furthest thing on their mind. They, they might give the appearance of serving God and, and this appearance of humility and that they're serving and ministering the people of God, but inwardly, they have a different agenda. Notice, even here in verse 10, they despise authority. Think about that. They despise authority because if you break down authority, you create anarchy. They're the ones in control. They're the ones in control. And God has given authority, hasn't He? He has set an order. He has set governments in order. And He's saying these people defy that authority that God has established. Whereas angels who are greater in power and might do not bring a reviling accusation against them before the Lord. Notice, here we have a comparison between angels and false teachers. And the comparison is obvious. Even the angels who are mightier in power are as bold, I'm sorry, they don't even cross that line. Angels don't even cross that line. And yet these folks do. They're bold, they're brash, they're presumptuous. Which leads us to the nature of false teachers in verses 12 through 17. Notice here, but these like natural brute beasts made to be caught and destroyed speak evil of the things they do not understand and will utterly perish in their own corruption and will receive the wages of unrighteousness as those who count it pleasure to carouse in the daytime their spots and blemishes carousing in their own deceptions while they feast with you. Interesting verse. It tells us that they're like natural brute beasts made to be caught and destroyed. It's interesting because at the end of the chapter, he's going to compare them to dogs and pigs. Hey, don't hold back here, Peter. And where do you think Peter got that from? Jesus Jesus says something similar in Matthew 7. These people are pigs. That's what false teachers are. These vile animals. Unclean. Peter just lets it fly here. Having eyes full of adultery and that cannot cease from sin, enticing unstable souls. They have a heart trained in covetous practices and they're accursed children. Imagine Peter knows they've already come in. He can pick them out already. Paul equally warned the Ephesians that, you know, He's in Miletus and he's, he's talking about his departure that wolves would rise up from amongst them. And so to Peter, it gives the, the same warning that these false teachers would be amongst the people of God. Notice, they're going to carouse in the, day, in the daytime. Meaning that the things that you normally would assume happens at night, they do it in the daytime. They don't even wait for nighttime. They do it during the day. And it says they're carousing in their own deceptions, meaning that they're, they're rewarding themselves at the expense of the sheep. What a picture, folks. You know, um, 
I, lately I don't watch that much TV. I may watch a few things here and there, but I was kind of intrigued by watching the preachers of L.A. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. You get a, a good idea what this passage is talking about. The homes, the cars. I mean, I watched one episode, and that's all I could stomach. And all they could talk about was their problems and the issues they're having. They never talked about the people of God. They talked about raising funds, having a crusade, but for what? For their enrichment. They're never talking about the Lord. They're never talking about the people of God. These are opportunists. You know, in verse 14 here, having eyes full of adultery and cannot cease from sin. It reminds me of 2 Timothy chapter 3 where Paul tells us that these folks creep into the homes of gullible women and they take them captive. In other words, they go in and they, they take advantage of these ladies. For what purpose? To rip them off sexually because they're sensual. You know, they come in for counseling sessions and, oh, yeah, you don't deserve this. And, and then they begin to just attract them and lure them and bait them in. Because these women are gullible. They're loaded down with their, with their sins and, and they're emotional. They know exactly what they're doing. They rip them off sexually. Hey, you know, I hear, I hear stories of ministers. You know, I've heard some recently, you know, where they just didn't get caught with one woman. Several women. Several women. And they destroy these ministries. Ministries that God has given them. And God's going to hold them accountable. He's going to judge them. Because these are God's people. And then you have some ministers who will have multiple relationships and they continue ministering. And the people still go. I, it blows my mind. How can you still go to a place like that? I don't get it. Yet they still do. Ladies, be careful of a minister who spends a lot of time with you. It ought not to be. You should sit down, share the scripture, and that's it. There's, there's no lengthy counseling sessions. There's no coffee later on. There's no hanging out. Okay? That's wisdom for you. Protection for you. You know, I, I'm, I'm so glad that, you know, Xavier, you know, being my boss, he's not here so I can talk about him freely. Um, you know, we, wherever we go, it's always by twos. Don't matter. Go to the store? Another country? All right, let's go. Never, ever alone. That's wisdom. Never want a false accusation. What do you want? False accusations. You see? And I appreciate that about him. Because he cares. Verse 15. They have forsaken the right way and gone astray, following the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of of unrighteousness, but he was rebuked for his iniquity. A dumb donkey speaking with a man's voice restrained the madness of the prophet. Notice, there's only one right way, folks. Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. Peter does something interesting here. He chooses another historical example for us. Usually when we read about Balaam, <clears throat> we tend to hear about the heir of Balaam, the way of Balaam, and the doctrine of Balaam. Balaam is referred to in two other places in the New Testament. Jude in the book of Revelation. Peter refers to the way of Balaam. He's an interesting fellow. Why? Why is he so interesting? Well, again, you can uh, read about Balaam in Numbers 22 through 24. And you know the story. King Balak wants to overthrow the children of Israel. So he requests for Balaam to come out and curse the children of Israel. Hey, and by the way, Balaam, there's money involved for you. Hey, hey, great incentive. Sounds good. Problema. God begins to speak to him. Don't go. Okay, I'm not going to go. Balak again comes back with another offer and he begins to sweeten the deal. He says, hey man, there's more money. What does Balaam begin to do? begins to rationalize, begins to justify, packs the stuff, goes. 
gets on his donkey. What does the donkey do? There's an angel in the path. The donkey stops, gets on the ground. Balaam jumps off, begins to beat the donkey. Eventually the donkey turns around and God gives him the ability to speak. He says, hey man, what are you doing? Have I ever done anything wrong with you? Haven't I taken you to every place you ever wanted to go? What is wrong with you? And it says, in the madness of the prophet, you are mad. If you think about it, if you begin to talk to a donkey and reason with him. He was so caught up with what he knew he was, he was going to gain that he began to reason with a donkey. From this vantage point, Balaam stands in stark contrast to Noah and Torah both of which lived in vile cultures. And now here we have Balaam, as it were, turning from the truth, taking the gifts and talents God had given him and exploiting them for his personal gain, for money. He stands as a lesson to all of us who forsake the right way and go astray. Notice verse 17. He says, These are wells without water, clouds carried by a tempest, for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. Literally, there are springs without water. If you're looking for a drink, you're going to end up thirsty. Your clouds carry by a tempest. In that day, and even in ours, you know, here in California, it's an arid area we live in. And, you know, right now we experience the drought. We see clouds, man, we're excited because we know rain is coming. The illustration is, these are clouds carried by a tempest. We see clouds, but nothing comes down. You're left unsatisfied. And that's what these false prophets do. They leave you unsatisfied. They bring nothing. It's all fluff. It's all an appearance. You're empty. It's like, you know, I was thinking about this. You ever, you know, you're driving in your cars, flashing E, you're an empty. And you finally get to a gas station and you barely make it. And they say, hey, sorry, pumps out of commission. Same thing. That's what these folks are. They're empty. Let's look at our last point. The objective of false teachers, verses 18 through 22. For when they speak great swelling words of emptiness, they allure through the lust of the flesh, through the lewdness, the ones who have actually escaped from those who live in the earth. The idea is they're seducing gullible believers, young believers in the faith. They captivate them with their, notice, great swelling words. They create the environment. And I'm going to paraphrase here. Hitler once said, when you get the masses of people and you take them into a room and you put the banners and you put the music and all these people are just energized and you walk in and you begin to speak, magic occurs. Because there's, there's a spirit that takes place. People are caught up. Yes, yes, they're all cheering. And they know that. They're very good at it. They learn from the best. Listen, you should take everything I say and every other teacher who gets behind the pulpit and examine what they say with the Scriptures. What did Paul say about the Bereans in Acts 17.11? That they were more noble. Why? Because they searched the scriptures daily to see if those things were so. They wanted to see if it was actually in the Bible. Because if it didn't line up, you're out. You didn't cut the mustard. If you're a new believer or new to the faith, do yourself a favor. Don't follow a man. Get yourself grounded. Spend quality time in the scripture. And don't get caught up with the eloquence of man. Get caught up with the person of Jesus Christ. Fall in love with him and His Word. Otherwise, you're going to be left empty. I guarantee you. While they promise them liberty, they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by whom a person is overcome, by him also he is brought into bondage. Brought into bondage. Perfect tense. Brought into bondage. Oh, you believe in the rapture? Really? You can have a drink. Come on, you can have one. I mean, what's the big deal? Pastor's having one. 
You don't really believe that. Come on, those are antiquated ideas. Let's sit around, let's go have a brew. Or, or I know of pastors who go out and get tattoos. That sends a nice message, doesn't it? I know them. And they flaunt it. You know, um, it's interesting because my sister, her ex-husband, we had a conversation not so long ago. He's a tattoo artist. And he says, you know what? I want out. It's a dark world. Our life begins at midnight. And nothing good happens. There's a, there's a feeling of guilt every night. And he's not a believer. Isn't that interesting? That's a non-believer. That's their commentary of, of that life. And you know, he wants nothing of it. And here we have Christians who go out and get tattoos. Something's wrong here. It's interesting. While they themselves promise liberty, but all the while they are slaves of corruption. They themselves are enslaved. They're slaves to their own corruption. Then it says, For if, after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome. The latter end is worse for them than in the beginning. For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than have known it, to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. But it has also happened to them according to the true proverb, a dog returns to its own vomit and a sow, having washed to her own wallowing in the mire. Interesting. Look, the idea Peter is trying to convey is they are dogs and pigs. No doubt, looking to Solomon to make the comparison, dogs devour just about anything. Okay? And if they happen to throw up, chances are they're going to return to it, they're going to smell it, and they're going to lap it up. No way. Yes, I have dogs. I promise you. That's what they do. They'll eat their own vomit. Now, you can take a pig, wash them all up, and I think all of you know what pigs do. You take them out of the, out of the mud, clean them all up, the moment you open the door, guess where they'll, they'll run? Back to the, to the mire. Back to the mud. Why? It's their nature. It's what they do. And notice the, the illustration your P- Peter's giving. The dogs and pigs. It's what they are. That's their nature. Again, the idea is that this is their nature and they're no different. And we're no different. My, my, my flesh is always ready for carnality. And that's what makes sense to the false teacher. Because they know it's appealing. It appeals to our flesh. You know, with respect to false teachers, just because we don't see immediate judgment, it doesn't mean they're going to get away. God knows who they are. But what about you? You know... We've seen tonight that false teachers have judgment awaiting them, which should tell you and me that if we live this way, judgment is certain. Let me ask you, are you taking advantage of people? Are you carnal? Are you giving in to your flesh? Do you think God will not judge you because He hasn't done so yet? He's called us out of the world to live differently now when someone looks at you they say hey what makes that guy tick what makes that girl tick I notice they don't go see that movie I notice they don't drink they don't laugh at that joke or do they see a prude self-righteous do they see the love of God in you we're different we should be distinct we're his children God will judge false teachers because they are held to a higher standard. They're up front. They have assumed the position of authority and responsibility. But it doesn't mean that they get a free pass. And notice they influence many, many as we're told. But we equally influence some, don't we? Family, friends, co-workers. I'm leave you with one last verse. James chapter 3 verse 1 says, My brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. We're held to a higher standard. 
Just like when you see a police officer, he's held to a higher standard, isn't he? But if he's outside getting drunk, robbing people, is he really a police officer? He's held to a higher standard. So too with us. We're held to a high standard. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you in Jesus' name. And Lord, we thank you. We thank you, Lord, that you give us these warnings. And Lord, help us to be in love with you, not with man. Lord, that we wouldn't get caught up with the eloquence of men. Lord, but to be in love with you. And Lord, with your people, with the family. And Lord, we would look to you. Lord, in all these things. And Lord, if, if we've sinned, if maybe we erred, Lord, and we're into those things, Lord, we would repent. And Lord, help us to walk after you. If you're here tonight and don't know the Lord, and if the Lord has spoken to you, maybe in areas that you're sinning, you walked away or you just don't know Him, we can pray tonight. And I'm going to repeat a prayer that you can repeat and ask the Lord to forgive you because He loves you and wants to wash of your sins. And if that's the case, let me re- say this prayer and you just repeat this prayer out of faith. Lord, I come to you in Jesus' name. And Lord, I ask you to forgive me of my sins. I know I'm a sinner. And Lord, I ask you to fill me with your Spirit. Lord, you forgive me. And help me to walk after you, Lord, all the days of my life. And I pray these things in Jesus' name.